gardens. Each new year is a surprise to us. We find that we had virtually forgotten the note of each bird, and when we hear it again, it is remembered like a dream, reminding us of a previous state of existence. How happens it that the associations it awakens are always pleasing, never saddening, reminiscences of our sanest hours? The voice of nature is always encouraging. Henry David Thoreau. The darkest hour may be just before the dawn, but the darkest morning comes well after midwinter, when the jollity of Christmas has long since faded away. The latest sunrise is almost three weeks after the December solstice. It might be a fresh calendar year and a new start. But as I cycled out today, it was one of the bleakest weeks of the year, with barely eight hours of daylight on my map. The January sun, when it eventually showed up, skulked low and reluctant across the sky. There had been a roaring in the wind all night, and the rain fell in floods. And now, in the morning, I was on my way masochistically to what looked to be one of the most nature-depleted squares on my map. In one of the most nature-depleted countries on the planet, this crowded map lies on the outskirts of a large city, so there are many pressures on its space, including farming, transport, industry, housing, and recreation. Everywhere you look, you see human impacts on the landscape, ranging from landfill sites to relayed hedges. There was little need for the cartographer to use any green ink here. The whole square was a grey grid of boxes representing buildings. Colour came only from two busy roads marked in yellow. There were just four scraps of footpath, little more than a couple of hundred metres of cracked tarmac, broken glass, and dog mess. I felt in more need than usual of nature's gladness, but could I find any of it here? The tragedy of the commons. That individuals ignore what is best for society in pursuing personal gain suggests that humans cannot manage a common resource. Why do we care so little about the Earth? Is it because we assume it is limitless? Apollo astronaut Edgar Mitchell's perspective on Earth changed after flying to space. He said, "You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation." An intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics look so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter of a million miles out, and say, "Look at that, you son of a bitch!" Why do we care so little about nature and its tragic decline? Is it because we have stopped noticing it? It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. It is not that the world is too small, but that we miss so much of it. As I rode up and down today's terraced streets, I passed a stout tree sawn off at thigh height. A dog pressed up against a window barked incessantly, desperate for fresh air and bigger horizons. Many houses had their gardens concreted over, prioritizing ease of maintenance and parking spaces. Others had replaced front lawns with artificial grass, which looks tidy and is easy for busy people to deal with. It has become a vast industry worth a whopping two billion pounds per year. 
but the green plastic is not very green, for it blocks access to the soil for insects, starves creatures living in the soil, and provides no benefits for nature. It is another pressure adding to the precarious state of our insects, with more than 40% of species declining and a third endangered. Our government is already missing the targets it set to protect nature, and not many of us seem particularly bothered. Although we like the idea of a green lawn, a lot of people don't seem to mind whether it is grass or plastic. But children can't make daisy chains on plastic lawns. Fortunately, as my irritation grew about the mayhem we're wreaking on the world, my eye was drawn by an evergreen hedge bursting with yellow and orange berries. Firethorn. The owner saw me photographing it. The birds love it too, he called from his driveway. It's fantastic. I planted it to stop the kids sitting along my wall like birds on a wire, shouting, dropping sweet wrappers, all that carry-on. Birds don't do that. It's been great as that hedge. His firethorn hedge then opened my eyes to other gardens as I pedalled up and down. A number of people had made concerted efforts to remove all traces of the natural world from their properties, only to hang baskets of fake plastic flowers around their doors. But many gardens did have grass, plants and bushes in them. Now that I was concentrating, it was apparent what a significant area they all added up to. Together, Britain's gardens are larger than all our nature reserves combined. These tiny oases are each vital havens for wildlife amid the concrete urban jungle of our cities and the sterility of our farmland. If we have a garden, we can make it a little wilder and help to provide corridors for animals to move along. That is why Wild East, a regional nature recovery alliance, has put together a map of dreams, showing everyone in the area who has pledged to rewild their garden, churchyard, school grounds, farm or business, and so generate more space for wildlife. Nudged to notice, I kept searching for nature throughout my ride. I found noisy starlings, black-headed gulls and a fox's path pushing beneath a fence. There were clusters of the weed called annual mercury, also known as girls' mercury or boys' mercury, because, according to Pliny, our regular correspondent, pregnant women could use it to help select the sex of their child. Ants and bullfinches enjoy the seeds, and in Germany some people boil the leaves to eat, for its acrid taste dissipates as it cooks. But in France, they call the plant la mercuriale annuelle, or la foirole, and la foire means diarrhoea. A German's delicacy, perhaps, is a Frenchman's laxative. The choice is yours. As the t-shirt says, you can't buy happiness, but you can buy a bike, and that's pretty close. It was a pity then that I didn't see any kids riding bikes around town and the only adult cyclists were the fast food couriers with enormous delivery bags on their backs. One of the town's numerous boarded up shops was a failed bike shop down the road from a closed down public toilet that was disappearing beneath a shaggy mane of ivy cascading from the roof. Urban rewilding warms my heart, <laughs> unless I need the loo. Rewilding is important in urban environments and the United Nations declare that green spaces need to be placed at the heart of urban planning. Pleasing also was an ornate water trough and drinking fountain, 
carved from granite in 1903 in memory of someone's husband for the benefit of horses and dogs. Today, it's marooned by traffic on a roundabout island, surrounded by a world unimaginably faster and noisier than the one it was built to serve. As I pedalled around, I mused that one of the contributing problems to the issues I'd encountered today was traffic. If you could magically get rid of it, there'd be a lot more space in the town for nature and for children to ride bikes. Most houses had two cars parked outside, and every road was lined with cars. Removing cars might sound radical and unsympathetic to people's needs, but our car dependency is a relatively new phenomenon and our assumption that it is unavoidable is another shifting baseline. When that water fountain was built, these streets were not jammed with cars and the gardens were more likely to be full of vegetables than plastic grass. Households with two vehicles use each car for less than 5% of the time. Imagine if a self-driving electric vehicle could drop you off at work, take your family somewhere else, and then pick you up again in the evening to go to the pub. No family would need more than one car. Share that vehicle with your neighbours and both the cost of commuting and the number of cars drops further. Invest heavily in public transport and even fewer cars are required. So I felt oddly hopeful as I considered whether this might just be a brief blip of a few decades where every adult needs a car. Could it fade away into a new era of fewer self-driving electric vehicles with more of us making our local journeys by bike, foot and electric public transport? We could then increase green space and community facilities. Hungry now, I looked for a place to buy a snack. Someone had put out an old toaster on their garden wall, offering it to anyone who wanted to take it. But I had neither bread nor plug socket, so I rode on to a parade of shops. The car park was congested and the bike racks were empty, despite the stores targeting locals. Food has a direct impact on two subjects I'm interested in, the environment and our physical fitness, so I was interested to see what was available in this grid square. The parade of shops was well placed to serve the local community, but I found only a post office, a rubbish convenience store full of biscuits and crisps, three takeaways, a beauty studio and a hairdresser. Britain has an appalling approach to community and food with all its consequent impacts on our public health. We have become an overweight, underactive nation living on processed calories and detached from both the land on which food is grown and the wide-ranging implications of our dietary choices. This grid square was a fresh food desert where access to fresh, affordable food was limited by inadequate public transport and unhealthy shops. While they are deserts, such locations, where more than a million of us live, are often simultaneously food swamps, obesogenic environments with high numbers of takeaways and empty calories. More than half of our food these days is processed, the most in Europe, as sugar, fat and salt are hard to resist and cheaper per calorie than healthier foods. The price is an important factor for communities struggling with a cost of living crisis. It is much harder to eat healthily when you are poor, and rows of convenience stores and takeaways don't help. 
By 2050, the health costs of obesity are set to approach £50 billion per year. Residents in this grid square have to drive or catch a bus to visit a big supermarket, which is difficult for people on low incomes who are short on time and less likely to have a car. It's crazy that our society is being harmed not only by too many cars and too many calories, but also by rising poverty that tends to mirror food deserts and swamps. Up to 15% of British families can't always obtain an adequate quality or quantity of food in socially acceptable ways, and more people than ever are turning to food banks to deal with food insecurity. There was a lot to take in on this small square. I'd begun the day with my mood matching the winter gloom. I felt sad about our lack of nature, crowded car culture and the impact of our terrible food system. But I'd also realised that even in the depths of winter there were plants everywhere, ready to let rip if we just left them alone. Insects and birds would soon follow. It was not an affluent area and the gardens were small, but nature was still there, willing to take any chance it was given. My favourite gardens had been those that crammed in a tree or a few bushes, leaving enough space for a couple of chairs and a summer barbecue. Gardens can brim with life, require little maintenance and cost less than plastic grass or tarmac, as well as being good for the soul.